Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today, three months on from the October 7th attack on Israel and the beginning of the bombardment of Gaza, and months into Israel's ground invasion, I'm joined by Avi Schleim, Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of the British Academy. Avi, it's brilliant to have you with us. Thank you for coming down to join us. It's good to be here. Avi, now you're a historian of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is the biggest daily unfolding story in the world. This isn't just history, it's what we're looking at every day. Everything that's happened since October the 7th, you know, including the violence on that day by Islamist militants and the bombardment and incursion of Gaza feels unprecedented to many of us. Just how important is the historical context in shaping your understanding of what's happening day by day now? It's utterly impossible to make any sense of the violence that is unfolding in Gaza these days without understanding the historical context. Um, The Hamas attack on Israel on uh, 7th of October didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a particular historical context and there were reasons for the Hamas attack. And the context and the reasons don't justify the Hamas attack, but they help to explain it. And the Hamas attack was a game changer. In the past, um, there were Hamas rockets fired from the Gaza Strip on southern Israel. But this time, um, Hamas fighters and also fighters from Islamic Jihad broke down the fence and um, went on a killing spree in Israel, around Gaza, in the kibbutzim, in settlements, and also music festival where 250 of the participants were killed and 240 hostages were taken. It was a completely horrific attack which um, took the life of 1,200 Israelis, mostly 
civilians. But the Israeli-Palestinian conflict did not start on the 7th of October, and the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza began after the June 1967 war. So the background is 56 years of Israeli occupation of both the West Bank and Gaza, um, and um, uh, this is the most prolonged and brutal military occupation of modern times. In 2005, Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza, um, but Israel remains the occupying power under international law because it controls access to Gaza by land, sea, and air. So this is a colonial project, the Zionist colonial project beyond the Green Line, beyond Israel's 1948 lines. And it's a colonial situation. The Palestinians are the last people uh, in the world who are still fighting an anti-colonial struggle. And this is the background to the Hamas attack. And if I may, I'd like to add one other factor, and that is the Israeli Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, has been boasting that the Palestinians are finished, that they are defeated, that they can't do anything, that Israel enjoys a free hand on the West Bank, and as for Gaza, it's effectively contained within the prison, and Gaza is the largest open-air prison uh, in the world. So he said, the Palestinians are finished, we can do whatever we want, and we can proceed with our, our agenda of making peace with more Arab countries without making any concessions on the Palestinian issue. And the Hamas attack signaled that the Palestinians are still there, they still agent, have agency, and that the resistance to Israeli occupation continues. Your conception of Israel as a settler colonial project and Zionism as a settler colonial movement you know, up until the foundation of the State of Israel is something that that you discuss in, in your book, your memoir, Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, that tells your personal story as a child born in Baghdad, raised in Israel and later coming to the UK, and tells a story of, of how you grew up within the Israeli state, educated in in Zionism, um, and later came to question the narrative that you were, you were raised in to come to the conclusion that Israel is a, a, a settler colonial state. But many people disagree fervently with you in that conception. How do you respond to their criticisms that um, actually Israel was a, a project that was necessary at the end of the Second World War to give European Jews a place of refuge, it's almost a moral project? How do you come back to them on that criticism? Uh, the Zionist movement uh, was an ally of Great Britain, and Israel, which is the main political progeny of the Zionist movement, uh, is a settler state. Zionism was a colonial movement. It couldn't have achieved its aim of an independent um, Jewish 
state in Palestine without British help. And the landmark was the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which enabled the Zionists to embark on the systematic takeover of Palestine, which continues to this day. And in Gaza today, this project continues with the aim of the depopulating of Gaza, the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, so that Israel would have more more territory under its control. Noam Chomsky once said that settler colonialism is the most extreme and vicious form of imperialism. And the Palestinians have been in the unlucky position of being at the receiving end of both Zionist settler colonialism and Western imperialism, uh, first under Britain and then under uh, America. All this happened before the Holocaust. The Holocaust gave a huge push in uh, uh, favor of an independent Jewish state because of Western feeling of guilt towards the Jews, something really major had to be done for them, and that something major was the state uh, of Israel. After June 1967, after the war, Israel trebled its territory. It, it captured the, the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank, including the old city of Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip from Egypt. There can be a debate on whether Israel was a colonial state or not before 1967, but I don't think there can be any debate that after the June 1967 war, Israel became a fully-fledged colonial state, dominating millions of Arabs recalcitrant Arabs in all the occupied territories and denying the Palestinians independence and statehood to this day. And I grew up as a normal uh, Israeli schoolboy. I was taught the Zionist version of the conflict. I served in the IDF in the mid-1960s and I was a first-year history student at Cambridge when the war broke out, and I volunteered to go back and to um, serve the country in the war that we all knew was coming. And the June 1967 war was a landmark in the history of the Middle East, but it was also for me personally. I had served loyally and proudly in the IDF, in the mid-60s, because in my time it was true to its name. It was the Israel Defense Forces. It was there to defend the country against regular armies of the neighboring uh, Arab states. And I really believed in the justice of our cause. I believed that we were a small, liberal, democratic, peace-loving country surrounded by predatory Arabs, and we had no choice but to stand up and fight. But everything changed after that war, uh, and um, Israel became a colonial power, 
and uh, my army um, became the brutal police force of a brutal colonial power. Uh, its mission had been to defend the country, but after the colonial um, rule was established over the Palestinian uh, occupied territories, the main mission of the army became to police the occupation. So that's when my uh, disenchantment with Israel began back in 1967 and it's been continuing and now with the atrocities committed by the IDF in Gaza it's reached uh, a new peak. I want to ask you a, a bit more about the I- the identity politics that play out in your work but also are you know at the center of this this conflict because you're looking at this both as a historian but also those personal moments your experience of 1967 your experience as a young man have given you a particular perspective and some might argue some of your critics might say a bias as well in your historical work how do you respond to that so my book is an essay on the politics of identity. My identity change uh, as I progress from one country to another. Um, so in Baghdad, where I lived up to the age of five, in a Jewish family, we were Arab Jews. Uh, we spoke Arabic. We had deep roots in the country going back to two and a half uh, millennia. Uh, the Jewish community was well integrated into uh, Iraqi society. And there is no better way to describe my initial identity as that of an Arab Jew. I was an Arab, we were Arabs, uh, and whose religion happened to be Judaism. Uh, uh, for circumstances beyond our control, we were, in 1950, when I was five years old, we were catapulted to Israel as part of the big exodus. And the whole Jewish community uh, in Iraq um, ended up uh, in Israel, mostly against their will. But we were, vict- we were not refugees, but we were victims of the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. And I- in Israel, uh, in Iraq, we were a privileged upper middle class family. My parents had a very, very high social status. No, not so in Israel. Aliyah means um, immigration to Israel, and Aliyah literally means ascent. But in the case of my family and myself, the move from Iraq and Israel involved very steep Yerida, descend down, uh, descent to the margins of Israeli society. And in Israel, um, I had a sense of inferiority because I was an Iraqi boy. Uh, Israel was a very Ashkenazi uh, entity, very European-style state dominated by the Ashkenazi uh, elite. And the immigrants from the Arab lands were looked down upon as rather backward 
and inferior, um, and Arabic was considered a primitive and ugly language. So I was very embarrassed when my father spoke to me in Arabic in front of uh, my friends, uh, and I um, didn't encounter direct discrimination, uh, but this feeling of European superiority was in the air, and I felt it uh, all the time, that I was looked down upon by my uh, society. So, as a result, uh, I had a sense of inferiority, which defined my um, relationship with Israeli society, uh, and uh, held me back at school. But later on, when I grew up and I became a historian of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I realized that there was an advantage in having lived in an Arab country because I, I experienced at first hand Muslim-Jewish coexistence. For my family and me, Muslim-Jewish coexistence wasn't an ideal to aspire to or an abstract idea. It was the everyday um, reality. Uh, and having lived in an Arab country meant that I could see both sides and I could relate to Arabs as human beings rather than just uh, as the enemy. So my disadvantaged background in Israel became an asset to me when I became a scholar. And today, I'm 78 now, um, I still define myself as an Arab Jew um, because I lived in an Arab country and I'm proud of being a Jew uh, and I'm proud equally of my Arab heritage. So this is a long journey of changing identity, but I've ended up where I began as an Arab Jew. And I mean, it's a fascinating story that you tell beautifully in your memoir. I would highly recommend anyone who wants to you know, learn about that experience of and that community of Arab Jews in Iraq to to read your book. Anybody who wants a kind of personal perspective on that period of history, it's it's really really interesting. Um, and there was one line that I pulled out that I think is you know perhaps a helpful framing when we're talking about the current situation. When you say. In an age of ethno-nationalism, it's important to recall that the categories of the Jew and the Arab were not always mutually exclusive. Juxtaposing them as opposites is both a cause and a symptom of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that kind of connection between these this identity politics, but which can sometimes seem hard to pin down, but here in this context is, is, is so clearly in front of us every, every day. One question I had also in reading your book, so you reflect on... Um, the idea of the clash of civilizations, which is, of course, of this 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 uh, this way of looking at the world that was um, very prominent in the 1990s. But there are you know many who would still look at um, what we're seeing in Israel and Palestine today as a kind of clash of civilizations. That there are groups that are opposed culturally, um, and that therefore. Jews and Muslims in this Arab space cannot coexist, that they will always clash. Why do you think that that narrative still is is pervasive and remains a, a powerful framing for this conflict? 
I, I think that the clash of civilizations thesis is completely the wrong framing for Israeli-Arab relations. Professor um, Huntington from Harvard popularized this notion in the 1990s. His central argument was that conflict after the fall of communism is no longer between states but between um, civilizations. And there was Judeo-Christian civilization on one side and Islam on the other, and that's the conflict. And I always thought that this is a really silly and superficial idea but some by someone who was deeply ignorant about the politics of the Middle East and the politics of um, identity. Uh, but some right-wing Israeli commentators and historians have adopted the clash of civilizations uh, thesis to apply to, um, to the Middle East. And they say um, the Arab-Israeli conflict is not a traditional conflict, traditional geopolitical conflict over territory. In a broader sense, it's a cultural conflict, conflict between civilizations with Judeo-Christian civilization on one side and Islam on the other. Uh, I think that this is totally the wrong uh, framing. In my book, I try to interweave the personal with the political. Now, when I look at the political side, um, when I ask why were we uprooted from Iraq, we were very happy there in Iraq. Why did we end up in Israel? And the answer is not linguistic. We spoke Arabic, so there wasn't any problem. The reason was not cultural, because there was no cultural gap between us and the Muslims. The driver of our displacement was not religious or cultural, it was political. It was the rise of nationalism on the Arab side and on the Jewish side, and the clash of two uh, national movements. So we were displaced from Iraq, which had nothing to do with clash of civilizations, but it was to do with the birth of Israel uh, and the conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbours. After the break, we'll talk more about the history of the conflict in Israel and Palestine and its possible solutions. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new seasonal subscription offer. We're discounting the price of an annual digital subscription by 50%. To take advantage of this great deal, please search for Prospect New Year Offer or visit subscribe.prospectmagazine.co.uk slash ny. Offer ends on Friday the 19th of January. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews, in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine. There is a school of historians of which you were one. I think Benny Morris was the historian who gave you a sort of collective label as revisionist historians. And you had some similar, some points of agreement in your early work, although you now have diverged. Some historians such as him would argue that your experience in, and your family's experience in Iraq was, was not the experience of, of all Jews in, in Iraq. And that actually, you know, perhaps there are other factors that drove the majority of Arab Jews out of Iraq. Have you come back to that criticism with a with a response? Benny Morris and Ilan Pape and I were the original um, Israeli um, revisionists or new historians, as we were called collectively. And in 1988, we, pu- we published books and between us, we launch a frontal attack on all the myths that have come su- to surround the birth of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli war. Mm-hmm. And most important was Benny Morris's book, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, 1947 uh, to 1949. It's based on meticulous archival research, and it demonstrates conclusively, as conclusively um, as possible in history, uh, that the Palestinians did not leave, in 1948, they did not leave Palestine of their own will. They were pushed out. So he's a major historian who has made a major contribution. But during the Second Intifada uh, and the suicide bombs, something happened to Benny Morris. I'm not sure what. But he veered to the extreme right and he revised fundamentally his understanding of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And his new conclusions were that the Arabs are to blame. 
Israel is an innocent party, uh, and the Arabs uh, want not just the occupied territories, but they want everything, and therefore it's a fight to the finish. It's an existential fight. Um, either they throw us out or we throw them out. So it's his new political views that I don't share and that I dispute. And also, to go back to your previous question, Benny Morris is one of those Israeli historians who have followed um, um, Samuel Huntington and applied the clash of civilization thesis um, to this conflict. And Benny Morris has a book on 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war. And in the introduction, in the, in the introduction he says that this is a civilizational conflict. Religion plays an important part uh, in it. Uh, and um, in the conclusion he repeats that this is not just a conflict over uh, territory. What is missing is the evidence for this view, <laughs> because everything that he writes between the introduction and the conclusion supports the view that it was a traditional geopolitical um, uh, conflict uh, over land. So that's where I, I differ with um, uh, Benny Morris. And as for his uh, claim that um, my experience was not typical of other Iraqi Jews, well, it's clearly true, but this is an autobiography. So I'm writing about myself and about my family. And I say we're a privileged upper middle class uh, family. And there were also poor working class Jews uh, uh, in Iraq. Uh, but th the point that I still insist on, which is in my narrative, is that Zionism used to look down on the Jews of the East. Uh, it had no interest in the Jews of the Arab lands. Um, it regarded them as rather backward. Uh, and Zionism was a movement by European Jews for European Jews until the Holocaust. The Holocaust removed the main reservoir for citizens for the uh, state of, of Israel, and it's only then that Zionism, the Zionist movement turned to uh, the Jews of the Middle East and uh, tried to bring them uh, uh, to Israel. And here I see a parallel between our history as Iraqi Jews uh, and the history of the Palestinians. The Palestinians were displaced in 1948. There was ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And we were displaced from our country, from uh, Iraq. And it's the Zionist movement which carried out the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That was stage one. 750,000 Palestinians became refugees. And the uh, Zionist movement also played a part in bringing over the Jews of the Arab lands to Israel. It wasn't the main factor. The main factor was persecution uh, of the Jews from the Arab lands. But it played a part 
in the Aliyah uh, from the Arab lands to Israel. And uh, it was the same Eurocentric mindset, the same Ashkenazi and colonial mindset and colonial institutions that had driven the Palestinians out of Palestine, which also brought and treated the Jews of the of the East uh, as rather uh, inferior. So I see two parallels. I see some parallels between Palestinian history and Jewish history. And my book is a personal account, but it is also a critique of uh, the Zionist movement and its treatment of the Jews of the Arab lands. We've just got a few minutes left, so I'd like to come back to the present day and to talk a bit about the potential solutions as you saw them when you wrote this book and as you saw them when you wrote this piece in Prospect magazine for us in December. The yeah, I think we can all agree that the daily news out of Gaza um, is completely horrifying. The, the death toll now stands at around 23,000 people, which is one in every 100 Palestinians living in Gaza have been have been killed since October the 7th and Israel's subsequent um, bombardment and ground invasion. Some of those are the hostages that were taken into Gaza from Israel as well. You've previously said that for a time you supported the two-state solution, but that the growth of settlements in the West Bank made you question that, and that you've since changed your mind. It When you wrote this book, which was published in June, you said that you favoured one democratic state between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all citizens, regardless of ethnicity or religion. That must have felt quite far away when you wrote it. What do you make of that possibility now? Well, let's start with the situation in Gaza. As you said, nearly 23,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Nearly 10,000 of them are children. Two-thirds of the casualties are women uh, and children. Um, so this is catastrophic. It's a second Nakba. What we are, um, moreover, Israel has displaced in Gaza 1.9 out of 2.3 million people, sometimes twice. Sometimes Gazans who obey Israeli orders subjected to an airstrike and killed. Israel has destroyed or damaged 60% of the buildings in Gaza. Israel is turning Gaza into a wasteland. So that's the reality. Zionist colonial project has reached its most cruel phase in the war in Gaza. In this situation, it's difficult to think of the day after. It's difficult to think of a political solution and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a political conflict to which there is no military solution. And yet all that Israel does is to pile more brutal force um, after more brutal force and inflict more death and devastation. That's not a solution. And it's not, uh, it doesn't begin to touch the roots of the conflict. It's a political conflict to which there can only be a political solution. And for many years, I used to support the two-state solution. It wouldn't give the Palestinians absolute justice, but a measure of justice. It would give them independence. On 
22% of historic Palestine. That's not asking too much. And when the PLO signed the Oslo Accord in 1993, it signed up to a two-state solution. But the Oslo peace process failed. It did not lead to Palestinian statehood. Why did it fail? It's because of the Zionist colonial project on the West Bank, the aggressive Zionist project, colonial project on the West Bank, uh, the expansion of settlements, which don't, which leave the West Bank with isolated enclaves surrounded by Israeli uh, settlements or Israeli soldiers. Uh, in other words, Israel, by its territorial expansionism and by its oppression of the Palestinians, uh, that has killed the two-state solution. And now there are only two alternatives, either the status quo, either more of the same, more Israeli occupation, um, more Israeli land thefts, uh, more oppression of the Palestinians, more brute force, more death and destruction. That's one alternative, which is the uh, alternative favored by Benjamin Netanyahu and his extremist government. Or the other alternative is one state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of religion and ethnicity. And this solution is the only democratic solution. This solution is the only one that gives equal rights to everybody. Uh, that's why I um, support a one-state solution today, and you can call me naive if you want to, uh, but I think that it's the Israeli politicians and generals who are the architects of the massacre that is going on uh, in Gaza. I think they are the naive ones if they think that military force is going to provide a solution or safety. There will be no security for Israel until there is Palestinian independence. And since Israel has excluded an independent Palestinian state, the only way for Palestinians to have freedom and equality is um, um, one state. And one other comment is that there is systematic dehumanizing of the Palestinians by Israelis. Uh, and the dehumanizing not just of Hamas, but of the Palestinian people at large. Uh, they are described as terrorists, as uh, irrational, as fanatics, as religious zealots, uh, with whom peaceful coexistence is not possible. I beg to differ. I think that the Palestinians are normal people, and they want... Um, what any normal people anywhere in the world wants, which is to live in freedom and dignity on their homeland. And Israel uh, is the obstacle. So that's, these are the thoughts that lead me to advocate today uh, one democratic state. Just one final question before we end. In that potential world of one democratic state, who today are the potential players who could represent Palestinian interests best in that state? So there are two leaderships on the Palestinian side. 
Uh, one is the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank, dominated by Fatah, and on the West Bank is governed by Hamas. And it is Israel that has divided the, and wouldn't allow any contact between the two, between the, uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, because Israel fears the unified Palestinian uh, leadership. Now, the Palestinian Authority is discredited. It lost an election to Hamas back in January 2006, and there have been no Palestinian elections since then because Fatah knows it would lose to Hamas. And if there was an ele election today, Hamas would win hands down over um, uh, Fatah. One idea that the Americans support is to put the Palestinian Authority back in charge. But this is to impose on the people in Gaza um, a Palestinian Authority that they don't support on the back of Israeli tanks. So this would be the crudest kind of imperialism to bring one group of politicians and put them in charge. Uh, uh, I think that's unacceptable to the people in Gaza. And I, my th thought for the day after is that it's not Israel that will decide what happens and it's not America um, that decides but there should be a, a Palestinian elections and the Palestinians should choose their own leaders um, and they would choose their own government both for Gaza and um, uh, the, the the West Bank, but Israel does not ex never accepted the results of the 2006 elections, in which Hamas won a free and fair uh, election, and formed a moderate government that wanted to negotiate uh, um, long-term truce with Israel. Israel refused to recognize the democratically elected government and Israel refused to negotiate. So the, continue, the conflict continued. And the United States and European Union followed Israel in refusing to um, recognize the, Palestinian, the Hamas government and refused to negotiate to their eternal shame because they are utter hypocrites. They say they support uh, democracy. He was a shining example of Arab democracy in action, and yet they did everything to frustrate the democratic verdict of uh, the people. Um, and as I wrote in my article in Prospect, this at Western attitude reminds me of what Bertolt Brecht said after the workers' uprising in East Germany in 1953. He said, if the government doesn't like the people, the government should dissolve the people and choose another. Is Hamas today not a very different organisation than it was in 2006? Uh, Hamas is a very different organisation today to what it was in 2006, because Hamas is a political party with a political leadership and a military wing. Today, the military wing is much more influential than it was back then, and extreme, and hardcore, and believes only in violence. 
but we have to understand this change in the context of history, and that is that Hamas opted to stop suicide bombs, to stop terrorism, and adopted the parliamentary route to power, and it won a fair and free election, and it formed a government. Um, uh, and it also uh, moderated its political program. The Hamas charter is anti-Semitic, and it called for the destruction of Israel and for one unitary Muslim state over the whole of mandatory Palestine. But once they were in power, they mo- li- rather like the PLO in its own time, they moderated to pr- their program and they said repeatedly that they would accept a Palestinian state mm-hmm. uh, in the occupied territories. Uh, but Israel refused to talk to them. So it's Hamas that has um, shown flexibility. Hamas was prepared to make uh, concessions. Hamas wanted to engage in diplomacy to resolve the conflict, but it encountered unending Israeli intransigence all the way. And it is this Israeli intransigence with the backing of the Western powers that um, led to the shift of power inside Hamas with the men with the gun becoming more influential. And the tragedy is that today Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza and uh, carrying out the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. Uh, And the Western powers are not just complicit with is in Israeli war crimes, America uh, is equally guilty of uh, Israeli war crimes because America is frustrating and preventing a ceasefire in Gaza. It defeated a ceasefire resolution in the Security Council, and America continues to supply Israel um, with the weapons and ammunition for the war in Gaza. So both Israel and America are committing appalling war crimes in Gaza today and what is unfolding in front of our eyes is a second Nakba, a second catastrophe, possibly on a much bigger scale than the uh, Nakba of 1948. Avi, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so sorry that we have to cut it short because there's so much more we, we could talk about and unpick about everything that we've said but thank you so much for joining us for listeners at home i would fully encourage you to to read both avi's memoir which as i say is a illuminating personal story of the life of an arab jew in baghdad in israel and in the uk and also of course to pick up the latest copy of prospect magazine where avi has written a a very powerful essay about what's unfolding in gaza so thank you very much for joining us thank you very much ellen it's a pleasure Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 